Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we are uh, going to visit Australia again today at the time of the late 1800s, early 1900s. It's been a common theme in the podcast lately. Yeah, it's a busy time in history because of the Industrial Revolution and a lot of things happening on the worldwide political stage. But today we're going to kind of hang out in a quiet little spot in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to talk about George Aston and the Mulca Store. And for a little bit of background on who Aston was, uh, he was born on October 11th, 1879 in Burnside, South Australia. And his parents were a blacksmith named James Albert Aston and James's wife, Rebecca. Rebecca passed away when George was still an infant uh, and his father remarried. But George and his stepmother were never very close. When he was 11, George left school, but he really liked to learn and he continued to read and study outside of the formal school environment. When he was 18, George joined the South Australian military forces. So that was in 1897. And he started as an orderly in the chief secretary's office. And then in 1899, he joined the first South Australian contingent, which was a mounted rifle squad consisting of five officers and 121 men. And he served in the South African War, which was fought between the British Empire and the Boer South African Republic, as well as its Orange Free State ally. And while he was in South Africa, George collected weapons and curios. He, like we mentioned, was always a lifelong learner. And he would send these back to his father, who then had them displayed at the Adelaide Pantheon Theater. George had what was described as an imposing physical presence. And after the war, he served as a constable in the South Australian Mounted Police. From 1901 to 1903, he was posted at various points around South Australia's Spencer Gulf and Gulf St. Vincent and some of the outlying areas, including Yorktown, Port Germain, and Coringa. While in Port Germain, George had his first contact with Aboriginal people, and in later life, he said he was curious about the similarities they might have shared with some of the African people he had encountered during the war. In 1904, Easton began a five-year assignment, and he was, during that time, patrolling the Gawler Ranges and Nullarbor Plain. And his station points were at Tarkula and Tumby Bay. And those two points uh, are about 560 kilometers apart from each other, north to south. And the area he was patrolling uh, is roughly 850 kilometers wide. So it's a big space, and he had a lot of time while he was out on horseback and camel patrolling And during those long periods, he slowly worked on developing an amicable relationship with the area's aboriginal population. And he would write regular reports to his superiors in which he urged them to let the aboriginal peoples work out their issues and solve their own problems using their own laws and ways, rather than encouraging the government to step in. Uh, And he's also said to have never carried a gun during his patrols. So he kind of made himself a very friendly easy to approach and easy to work with figure for the Australian government in working with the Aboriginal peoples of the area. During this period, George also got married. Uh, On April 12th of 1905, he married a governess named Mabel Agnes Maud Mary White. In 1912, he started a nine-year appointment at the Birdsville Track Outpost. The Birdsville Track is a 517-kilometer dirt road that runs from Marie in South Australia north to Birdsville in Queensland. Roughly in the middle is Mungarani, which is the site of the outpost. 
Incidentally, this is allegedly an aboriginal word meaning big, ugly face. And we would love to hear from anyone who can confirm that from Australia. Uh, because CNN says that's what it means. But, you know, that's CNN. We, we always like corroboration. Yes. Primary sources are awesome. The track passes over sand hills, a dried up riverbed called Cooper Creek, which sometimes floods, and the Sturt Don- Stony Desert. During the near decade that Aston was stationed on the Birdsville track, handling day-to-day business as a policeman, which included patrolling the area on Camelback, he acted as the coroner, he had to make repairs to the police station as needed. He was also studying the Aboriginal population, and he served as their subprotector. And as subprotector, he photographed and documented the lives of the Aboriginal population, particularly the Wankanguru of Eastern Lake Eyre, and he reported annually on their population to his superiors. He also distributed rations to people who were in need, and his station at Mungarani is said to have become a camping place for displaced Aboriginal people. He also crusaded for the fair treatment of the Aboriginal population. And there was an incident where a European had been killed and a policeman from Central Australia was leading a pretty brutal charge against the Aboriginal population. And Aston wrote a letter to his Melbourne correspondent about it. And in it, he said, I would like to be on one of these commissions into the way the blacks are being treated. There is no need for it. It is just brutal cowardice on the part of the people who do the shooting. I am prepared to go anywhere in Australia, unarmed, among the blacks, and I am sure I would be better treated by the blacks than I would be by the whites. I never had need to chastise a black fellow, even in my police days. And the blacks out to the northwest of Tarkula were deemed the worst in Australia 20 years ago. I went out among them, and all I can remember receiving at their hands was courtesy and kindness and all the help they could give me. So throughout the years... Aston had really become something of a scholar regarding Aboriginal culture. He had been corresponding throughout his police work with academics and experts throughout the world, and he even lectured on occasion at the University of Melbourne on the topic of ethnography. Uh, starting during his 1904 appointment at Tarkula and Tumby Bay, he had also begun to collect and document stone tools. And as he continued his relationships with various tribes throughout the years, he continued to c- collect samples, um, spears, boomerangs, magical pointing bones, which were used uh, for hexes and, and spell work and art pieces, as well as fossil records from the areas. And all the while, he was kind of assembling these uh, as part of uh, an ethnographic evidence he was working on that stone tools of the Aboriginal peoples uh, had developed indigenously. They had not been imported in from anywhere and adopted. They were actually part of their natural um, development as a culture. Incidentally, there are some accounts that suggest that he was actually instrumental in the abandonment of using the practice of using pointing bones. Allegedly, he let members of the tribes use the bones, which were normally used for curses, to point at him and see that nothing happened as a result. Yeah, which would be kind of interesting. <laughs> Look, see, I'm fine. Uh And in 1920, as his appointment on the Birdsville track was coming to a close, uh, Easton contacted an art dealer in Melbourne. And then he also talked to anthropologists and archaeologists to share his findings and samples. He eventually co-wrote a book entitled Savage Life in Central Australia with archaeologist Dr. George Horn. 
And because Aston had also been practicing and honing his photography skills throughout the years, it's his images that make up the book's photo plates. He also published numerous articles throughout the years about the Aboriginal people and their tools and their culture. So he really was kind of educating the world in many ways about the people he was living with and getting to know and probably providing a a much more balanced bit of information than anybody else had done before. In 1923, he resigned from the police force rather than take an assignment that was going to move him away from the area he had started to really love. He leased some land and bought the then-tiny Mulka store. It was a little store in the middle of nowhere, just 25 miles, which is about 40 kilometers south of Mungarani, on the Birdsville track. The store was 150 miles, or about 241 kilometers, from the nearest town, and it had no natural water source. Uh, around 1900, boreholes had been sunk into the Great Artesian Basin, uh, 5,000 feet down. And the Great Artesian Basin is one of the largest underground water sources in the world, and it actually underlies about 22% of the Australian continent. When he set up the store, he leased one of these bores so that he could sell water for a penny a drink. Initially, these boreholes were meant to draw water for livestock, The Australian government was hoping to develop the Birdsville track as a cattle driving route. Roughly 40,000 head of cattle passed through the Mulkabore area each year before corrosion in the pipes damaged the water flow. Yeah, so he was initially able to charge a penny per drink for the animals. I see. As well as the people. So it really was pretty a pretty lucrative setup in that regard. Uh, And to stock his store in the middle of nowhere, Aston depended on the mail service to bring goods from all corners of the earth. And he stocked a really odd assortment of things that it's hard to imagine someone needing in the outback. He Some of them were obvious, like horseshoes and bridles, but he would also stock ribbons, medicine, flour, sugar, round cheeses, uh, which I've heard to refer to kind of as the fast food of the era because you could take it and go and eat it in your hand. Uh, and he also had on display his collection of medieval armor and dueling pistols. So if you can just imagine this fully stocked sort of general store, but then with medieval armor on the walls and dueling pistols on display, just sort of this odd little curio shop. I'm imagining some kind of weird cross between medieval times and Cracker Barrel. <laughs> uh, I've seen one picture of it. And it looked much more um, organized than that. Okay, good. You know, it didn't have that sort of like, it was very quaint, but it, it wasn't like a homey, like, come on in, we've put some things around. Everything really seemed like it had a place. Part of the reason he kept this wide range of items in stock was because his was the only shop for miles and miles. So he kind of wanted anything that a customer might happen to need. Most of his customers were escorting cattle or owned the various cattle stands along the track. And Potty, as he came to be called by friends, also did any blacksmith or taxman's work as needed. So if their horses needed shoes, he was on it. Uh, you know, he would take care of the sorts of little necessary things that you need. And there wasn't a blacksmith around either. So he kind of took up that as his second job. And he had kind of a third job in doing construction work on the store to expand the store itself and the attached living quarters. And then in 1927, having had several years of success running the store, because again, even though it's in the middle of nowhere, lots of uh, cattle driving happening and, go- and people stopping for water and food and their needs. But then he also added a gas station because car traffic was starting to surpass horses and camels on this dirt track. But unfortunately, a drought was on the way. 
From 1927 to 1934, a record drought took a huge toll on the outback and everyone and everything that lived there. The cattle stations along the Birdsville track shut down, and that pretty much took all of his livelihood with them. During the drought, he traveled to two different exhibitions in Melbourne to give talks about the Aboriginal art and culture that he had come to know so much about. And in both occasions, he was accompanied by tribesmen who demonstrated their skills and ceremonies. Despite all the hardship of the drought, the Aistons stuck it out at the Mulca store. They recognized that the lack of business was going to pretty much take away their retirement plan. Uh, and they just continued working. So for the next nine years, they were like, well, we're just going to keep going and we won't be able to retire in style early, but we're going to keep this store happening. Sadly, he died in September of 1943 after a battle with cancer. But even after uh, Potty had passed away, his store did not close. Uh, even without her husband, Mabel continued to run the store, and she actually did so for eight more years. And during that time, business started to pick up, the drought had ended, and tourism actually started to bring traffic back to the Birdsville track. So even though the cattle were not passing through anymore, new kinds of travelers were. Uh, and she was actually pretty reluctant to retire because she was so attached to the land. Uh, but she did eventually do so in 1951. She was in her 70s at the time. In 1953, Mabel donated Potty's Aboriginal artifacts, the medieval armor, and the gun collection, along with other pieces that had been housed in the store, to the South Australian Muse- Museum. A lot of his photographs also eventually joined the collection. And the National Museum of Australia at Canberra, the Mitchell Library at Sydney, and the South Australian Museum all have various pieces of Aston's correspondence and research papers in their collections. The story that emerges when you look at his life is one of a pretty remarkable man. He was smart, resourceful, and independent, and able to bridge this cultural gap between the uh, white people who were settling in Australia and the Aboriginal peoples who already lived there. His photographs, particularly his landscapes, are also quite striking. You can find some of them in the book, Images of the Interior, Seven Central Australian Photographers. And if you actually Google that title, you will pull up some images from various places. And they are just beautiful. Uh, and it's there's an interesting note also regarding Aston's collection of his Aboriginal implements. He never took any of them. He always bought or bartered for them, and he would only make deals for items which Aboriginal peoples were offering. He never tried to cajole any of the tribes that he befriended into parting with anything that they weren't sort of willing to freely offer him in a trade, which is pretty cool. Uh, you know, he was in a position, especially as a policeman, that he probably could have just taken anything of theirs that he wanted, but he never did. He always made it a fair trade. His book, Savage Life in Central Australia, is now regarded as one of the few accounts of the ceremonies and life of the Aboriginal tribes he had become so familiar and friendly with. And as the Aboriginal culture in the area collapsed, there wasn't really much else left behind in the cultural record. Yeah, there weren't uh, books prepared by the Aboriginal people, so we didn't, you know, they didn't really leave us a library behind as, as their culture kind of fell in on itself. So thankfully, we have this account of someone that at least was a firsthand witness, even if not an actual participant. It's pretty neat. Uh, so yeah, the Mulca store. I, it's so amazing to think about choosing to live this life out in the middle of nowhere and having this very unique relationship with the indigenous peoples and uh, 
just you have to have such an independent spirit. It's so like what you would think of when you think of people in the outback of Australia. But he was the real deal. Yeah. I really like that that all of this this collection that he built was built of things that were freely given and not things that were taken. Yeah. Because that unfortunately the other the other way is the way that it's, it's we how many a, museums have acquired their stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of those things that kind of bothers me sometimes when I'm in a museum seeing artifacts and kind of wondering how they got there. Yeah, it's a little bit tricky. It's a uh tricky bit of morality to work with sometimes. Yes. But not if you're looking at any of his collections, which are still on display. Do you have some listener mail, too? I just might. This particular piece of mail comes from our listener, Josh, and he says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I was listening to your podcast on the Phoenician Abjad alphabet and noticed your reference to the purple dye that the Phoenicians traded. That reminded me of biblical references to dyes, and that Phoenician dye, known as Tyrian purple, is known in the Bible as Argamon, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. It is cited in Exodus 28.15 as one of the dyes used in the priestly vestments. And I did look it up, and it it's often um, associated with like more of a crimson shade of purple. Uh, Paul Friedlander found in 1909 that this dye was extracted from the snail Murex brandaris. Interestingly, a decade later in 1919, Rabbi Itzhak Halivi Herzog, who, which I'm also hoping I pronounced correct, uh, correctly, was also an amateur chemist and would later serve as the chief rabbi of British Mandate Palestine and the first chief rabbi of the state of Israel. He earned his doctorate in literature from the University of London for discovering the source of a related dye, tekelet, from a related snail, hexaplex trunculus, which I just love to say those two words together, is my interjection. Tekelet, which is related in appearance to indigo, has an interesting history of its own, being used not only in the same priestly vestments as argamon, but also in the daily garments of the people in the blue thread of the fringes, or tzitzit. This dye was so important that it continues to be referred to twice a day by observant Jews in the recitation of the Shema. Vox Tablet, the podcast for the Jewish culture website Tablet Mag, has a dedicated episode on the history and rebirth of Teklet manufacture called The Search for an Ancient Blue, which I'm now going to seek out and listen to because that sounds really cool to me. So thank you, Josh, for letting us know about that. It's I, I am so kind of into textile and that whole world that to me this sounds like the most exciting podcast I could ever listen to. Do it. I love it. Dye and color and fabric. Hello. I'm all over it. I'm a big fan. Uh, If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can connect with us on Twitter at mistinhistory at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and uh, mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest. If you want to have a fun little read about Australia, you can go to our website and type in the word boomerang, and you will get a fun article called How Boomerangs Work. You will know all about the physics of their flight. It's some awesome physics. <laughs> if you would like to learn about almost anything else you can think of or that you have an interest in, you can do so at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.